Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Some of our listeners remember the Cold War. Others were taught in school about this period in U.S. history. Today, in 2017, what's the status of nuclear proliferation around the globe? Coming up, we'll learn more about China's relationship with North Korea, and we'll get an update on other nations with nuclear capabilities, like India and Pakistan. But first, after World War II, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists created the Doomsday Clock, a symbol to describe the threat of nuclear catastrophe. Midnight signifies the beginning of a global nuclear war. Earlier this year, the Doomsday Clock was set to two and a half minutes to midnight. The setting is the closest to midnight since 1953, when the U.S. and Russia began developing the hydrogen bomb. Given news surrounding North Korea and President Trump's comments this summer about the U.S. needing more nuclear weapons, should we be concerned about a future nuclear war? You can join the conversation later this hour, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, our first guest has been working in the anti-nuclear movement for decades. A trained physician, Dr. Helen Caldicott, is founding president of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Its international umbrella group won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985. Now, Last month, ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, which Dr. Caldicott helped create, won the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize. Dr. Caldicott is editor of the new book, Sleepwalking to Armageddon, The Threat of Nuclear Annihilation. She joins us by phone from her home in Australia. Dr. Caldicott, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you, Lucy. So tell our listeners uh, who may not uh, know your story, uh, tell us about your background. So you were a trained physician. How did you get involved in the anti-nuclear movement? Well, I um, read a book by an Australian called Neville Shute called On the Beach when I was about 16. And it was about a nuclear war that occurred by accident and everyone in the world was killed except people in Melbourne, Australia, which is so far south. And that's where I lived. And gradually the radiation came down and everyone died. And that was the end of, of the human race. And that book marked my soul. I then went to medical school age 17, learned about radiation and genetics. And at that time, Russia and America were testing bombs in the atmosphere like there was no tomorrow. And I couldn't understand what these scientists thought they were doing, of radiation millions of people with fallout. Um, I was always curious. I used to read everything I could find in the papers about nuclear weapons, but I I had no opportunity to express my concern. Um, and it wasn't until I moved to the United States in '65 with three young babies under three, I got a part-time job at Harvard. But I was there for three years, and I saw a democracy in action. Nixon was elected, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King were killed. The anti-Vietnam War movement was massive, um, and I, I saw how a, a, a really lively democracy functions. I went home to Australia, and in 1971, I found the French were testing nuclear weapons in the atmosphere in the Pacific, violating international law, and we got a high fallout in Adelaide, where I lived. So I wrote a letter to the paper saying children could get leukemia from drinking milk with radioactive elements in it. 
they published the letter and I was on television frequently in the next nine months every time the French blew up another bomb, which was frequent. And um, I found the Australian people didn't like the French very much. They thought they were arrogant and they were furious and there were spontaneous marches of thousands in the city streets every weekend and people stopped buying French perfume and French cheese and the like. Finally, our Prime Minister was the Prime Minister of New Zealand took France to the International Court of Justice and she was forced to test underground. So I learned what your Je President Jefferson said so many years ago, an informed democracy will behave in a responsible fashion and that was the beginning mm. of my journey, I guess, against all things nuclear. I understand that you were a pediatrician at the Children's Hospital Medical Center in Boston until 1980 when you resigned to work full-time on this cause, this anti-nuclear cause. Describe that time in 1980. So we're talking about the Cold War. How many other people were you encountering uh, besides physicians that were really concerned about nuclear capabilities? Well, um, at, at, at that time, uh, or a year or two before, most Americans I spoke to uh, about the threat of nuclear war said it was better to be dead than red, and I thought, these people are mad. Um, and so I got together physicians for social responsibility, and we recruited 23,000 doctors to describe to the public about the medical effects of nuclear war. We helped symposia in major cities at Harvard and Stanford and the like um, about the medical effects. And we got a lot of publicity. And then other organizations formed like architects and social workers and psychologists and educators for social responsibility. And by 1982, so educated were the American public that we had a million people marching in central park against the nuclear arms race, the biggest march in the history of America. And within five years, 80% of Americans were opposed to the nuclear arms race. And I, I would say that was the second American revolution. It was sagacious, peaceful, and well-informed. Um, and it, it, it was a total change of attitude towards the world. And people started traveling to Russia and getting to know the Russian people. And I met with Reagan in the White House for an hour and a quarter talking to him about nuclear war alone with his daughter, Patty. Um, and Gorbachev saw American physicians on television in Moscow talking about the effects of nuclear war. And so he and Reagan got together in Reykjavik and they almost agreed over a weekend, two mere men, to abolish nuclear weapons, but they got hung up on Star Wars. But the Berlin Wall came down a couple of years later, and, you know, that was we were partly responsible for that, and everyone is so relieved. We all lay on our couches because we were so tired and said, well, that's it, you know. They'll get rid of the bombs now, and, and politicians started talking about the peace dividend and millions and billions of dollars transferred to peaceful projects. But unfortunately, the military liked their bombs and they kept them and the presidents weren't strong enough to abolish them and we're still stuck with thousands of nuclear weapons, enough to destroy the Earth many times over. It's called overkill in the Pentagon. You kill people and they stand up again and you kill them and they stand up again. Of the 16,400 
hydrogen bombs in the world today, Russia and America, are 94%. Only they can destroy the only life in the universe. So the real terrorists, the really, truly terrorists in the world today are Russia and America. Those were strong words, Dr. Helen Caldicott. Um, can we talk a little bit about uh, what happened after the so-called Cold War ended? Um, you say in your new book, the, the Sleepwalking to Armageddon, The Threat of Nuclear Annihilation, that we are closer to nuclear war now than we have ever been before, even during the height of the Cold War. Uh, walk us through uh, your opinion of that. Yes, well, now, Russia isn't communist anymore. It's a kind of pseudo-democracy, although the oligarchs and the crooks in Russia stole, you know, huge oil supplies and, like, and became filthy rich. Uh, But the truth is that we need to be friends with the Russia because Russian, it's Russian bombs that are targeted on us. I mean, there are 12 to 40 hydrogen bombs from Russia targeted on New York alone let alone every other city, including Hartford. Um, and every city with a population of 50,000 or more is targeted by Russian bombs. So it's imperative that we get on with Russia. Um, we are in great danger now because there's a whole thing going on in the, in the mainstream media in America about awful Russians interfering in the election. Well, let's be frank. The CIA has interfered in 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 other countries' elections, really since the end of the Second World War. And they've killed people like Allende in, in Chile and, and the like. So America's been interfering in elections for many, many years. The Russians, I don't think it was the Russian government, um, but I think it was hackers and stuff. But so what? We've got to get on with them. Well, anyway, there's an animosity towards them. Um, it's important for the military-industrial complex, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and General Electrics and General Dynamics, etc., to have wars because they need to get a trillion dollars a year from the American taxpayers to build their bombs. The bombs get used, and then they have to build more bombs. So it's all good for them, and it's imperative they have wars. So the military-industrial complex, which is the Pentagon and the corporations, um, made sure that the, that the nuclear weapons are still in place. They did get, America and Russia did get rid of thousands of them, but there are still 16,400, and it takes a 1,000 hydrogen bombs stopping in 100 cities to produce nuclear winter, a short ice age, and everyone and everything will freeze to death in the dark. A 1,000 bombs on 100 cities. And there are 16,400. Now, also, to add, add, oh, I can't think of the right word, but insult to injury, we've got Donald Trump, who is a narcissistic um, man-baby, really, um, who's petulant and, uh, and I think about 56 psychiatrists or 57 have written articles and letters saying that he's not fit to be president. Indeed, he's the only man in America who can start a nuclear war with three minutes' notice. Now, you did say Um, earlier, Dr. Caldicott, you did say earlier that uh, the U.S. uh, should try to work uh, with Russia. I mean, that's something that President Trump has been more amenable to than past presidents. That's exactly right. And that's the good thing about Trump. He wants to work with Russia, 
And he said that for many years, actually, that he, he, he thinks he could help to bring an end to the nuclear arms race with Russia, and Putin seems amenable. Um, I think he's been discouraged by the hawks in his, his cabinet, who are all military men, but if he is strong enough, he, he could work with Putin and together they could reduce tensions and, in fact, have no tensions between them and make friends and get rid of these terrible, terrible, life-destroying, murderous weapons. Mm. On the phone with us is Dr. Helen Caldicott, founding president of Physicians for Social Responsibility, editor of the new book, Sleepwalking to Armageddon, The Threat of Nuclear Annihilation. Uh, Dr. Caldicott says in the book that uh, we are closer to a nuclear war now than we were during the Cold War. Is this something that you agree with? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. To get a different perspective on the phone with us now is John Mueller, senior fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C., also political scientist at Ohio State. State University. Uh, John, welcome to the show. Thanks. Nice to be here. I wanted to get some context on uh, the U.S.'s policy towards nuclear weapons, our, our nuclear deterrence doctrine. Can you walk us through that, John? Yeah, well, I think mostly um, I agree with a lot of the things that Dr. Caldicott is saying, except with the alarm. Um, the nuclear weapons really have not been very important, and I think they're pretty much under control. Um, I would like to see them go away because it makes the uh, incredible waste of time money, effort, and scientific talent. Uh, They were not uh, necessary to deter war during the Cold War. The Soviet Union, every document coming out of the Soviet uh, archives pretty much indicates that they never in a million, jillion years had any interest in getting into anything that would look like World War II again, much less one with nuclear weapons. In other words, there was nothing to deter. And for the most part, that uh, continues to the present day. Uh, The other thing that's uh, interesting is that uh, over uh, the last nearly 75 years, we've constantly been told about uh, how dangerous it would be for nuclear weapons to proliferate. But nonetheless, we've now had nearly 75 years of experience with it. Proliferation has been fairly, quite vastly slower than a lot of people feared. Um, And no one has ever used a nuclear weapon for anything except stoking their national ego and deterring real or imagined threats. So I mostly find them... um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, essentially a waste. Um, but I don't find them a huge danger. Mm. Uh, and with those views in mind, the the deterrence policy that the U.S. has um, for years now is that something in terms that we should we should be working better at uh, reducing these arms, uh, John. I'm just looking at a report from the Council on Foreign Relations that the. CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, estimates that maintaining and modernizing U.S. nuclear forces will cost $400 billion between now and 2026. Yes, uh, they continue uh, to be extremely expensive. Actually, one calculation is that during the Cold War, the United States spent uh, enough on nuclear weapons and the methods for for, uh, delivering them uh, to have purchased everything in the world, in the country except for the land, somewhere between five and ten trillion dollars in, in, uh, in those days. Um, and uh, it seems to me the best way to get rid of them, however, is not is not at all necessarily uh, through negotiation, but basically through sort of a market system. Uh, if people become more and more in belief that they, they're not really all that necessary, they can gradually reduce them and will, in fact, have. Uh, since the Cold War. Uh, France also, for example, now has about one-third as many as it had at the end of the Cold War. Um, And so uh, if you have to buy agreement, uh, 
uh, what it means you have all the lawyers in there and they have to figure out every every angle and so forth and also if it's by agreement you can't necessarily reverse the decline in case of emergency or something or at least it's very difficult so consequently the best way is not to do it by agreement but basically do it by uh, having each side sort of uh, uh, as they did during cold war and building up the weapons having each each side uh, gradually reduce and the other side reduce in kind mm-hmm. And, and it, but partly because there's so much uh, financial um, uh, uh, problems with keeping them keeping them going, as you've already indicated. I want to go back to Dr. Helen Caldicott again. She's joining us by phone from her home in Australia. Uh, Dr. Caldicott, uh, how much power would the does the non-nuclear nations have really to influence uh, U.S. and Russia towards nuclear disarmament? Since you mentioned that these two countries have 94 percent of the the weapons that we should be worried about. That's a very, very good question. And in fact, a lot of young people around the world have formed an organization called the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and they've been very clever. They've worked intensively at the United Nations um, without much publicity, and they've got 122 nations to agree to the notion uh, of abolition of nuclear weapons. Now, none of the nuclear nations have joined, but their technique is this, that there are five NATO countries, Turkey, Germany, the Netherlands, Italy, uh, Belgium, and there's one other, that harbour and and keep American tactical nuclear weapons. They are getting fairly uncomfortable, it seems, about this. We're silly having them anyway. Um, and they're da- damn dangerous things, uh, and so if and and so they're going to pressure the, those countries and their diplomats to join the abolition caucus, if you will, in the United Nations. And as they move the NATO countries, it's going to make other countries like France, mentioned by John just now, um, and maybe. India and Pakistan, maybe. I don't think Israel will come in, but you never know. And other nuclear nations to be pressured to to join the, the, the abolition caucus at the United Nations. And then eventually, if they can get those countries together to say, look, this is crazy, we'll get rid of our weapons, um, there'll be such pressure upon Russia and America um, to to abolish their weapons. So I think the holdout's going to be the United States because the generals love their nuclear weapons. That's why I wrote a book years ago called Missile Envy a la Freud, <laughs> and they didn't like that at all, but they all had a copy, all the generals in their offices. Um, and so America must see not the mote in the other person's eye, but look instead for the mote in its own eye rise to its full moral and spiritual height and do the right thing and abolish its nuclear arsenal. And I know that Putin wants to do that too. He's already said that. It's too expensive, as John mentioned. And maybe we'll we'll get on the right track. But certainly these young people who've just won the Nobel Peace Prize um, have been very clever, very subtle and take an attack that none of us years ago imagined to take. Uh, you keep mentioning U.S. and Russia, Dr. Caldicott. Um, how does uh, North Korea fit into this with attention on... Oh, that's, uh, well, that's a good question. 
My brother was the, was the ambassador in South Korea for Australia some years ago. The um, America has never signed a peace treaty with North Korea. They have an armistice treaty, but no peace treaty. So they're sort of fundamentally uh, still at war. The uh, North Koreans have forever been wanting a peace treaty to be signed with America, a non-aggression treaty, and they want to be uh, be trade partners with them. In fact, it was Clinton, I think, who w worked out a treaty with them so that he would um, give them two light water nuclear reactors, sell them heavy oil, and negotiate with them. And they have already said if they can negotiate these deals, they will get rid of their nuclear weapons. They only have them as as prevention and as a safety deterrent because every year America with South Korea and Japan and I'm not sure if Australia joins, I'm not sure, has huge military exercises just south of the 38th parallel which are extremely provocative. At the moment the three aircraft carrier groups are just sailing near North Korea, also provocative to a young, rather volatile leader. Um, and instead of working with North Korea and, and negotiating with them, the Pentagon needs North Korea as an enemy because it justifies their weapons and their military exercises and the like. Um, so they've kept North Korea on purpose as, a, as an enemy. And for many years, in fact, the Pentagon... Uh, the, the people in the Pentagon play actual war games with each other and many of the war games start with North Korea invading South Korea and it always leads to a nuclear war. So you can see that it's a sort of symbolic situation to have North Korea isolated and, and and antagonize them, but it's terribly dangerous. I wanted to get um, uh, John Mueller's North take Korea on... Could, Dr. Dr. Kolek, I just wanted Korea to... Could, Oh, Dr. I wanted I just to just get... To say one okay, more thing. Okay. <laughs> North Korea could destroy a city, could destroy mm -hmm. Seoul, it could destroy Tokyo, but only Russia and America can destroy most life on the planet. I wanted to get John Mueller's take again. He's senior fellow at the Cato Institute. You said earlier, John, that overhyping can lead to wars and unnecessary death. Um, are you concerned uh, with what Dr. Caldecott is saying in terms of, of, of U.S. and Russia being the real terrorists? Uh, yes, I don't think they're likely to use those weapons at all. The North Korean thing is really an interesting issue because it really, from my perspective, doesn't bloody well matter whether they get nuclear weapons or not. Nonetheless, this is being hyped as a major threat, uh, alarming threat, so that uh, one would seriously consider using new, um, um, military means to take them out. Uh, the North Koreans are unlikely to use the weapons, assuming they, they ever really get them in, in meaningful numbers, uh, to do anything anything more than other people have done before, which is to deter real or imagined threats uh, and to stoke their national ego. Um, the alarm about nuclear weapons, and particularly about nuclear proliferation, has one of the main causes, perhaps a necessary cause, of the war in Iraq. Uh, if there if there had been no nuclear danger that one could hype, which they certainly did in the early in the, in, in the early part in, in, in the early part of the century, um, the uh, war would not have taken place. The result then is basically a couple of hundred thousand people have died because of that war. That is to say, since 1945, nobody has died from nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. but at least a couple of hundred thousand people have died because of anti-war or anti-proliferation hysteria. 
Uh, and, and we're seeing it again. Uh, for example, that was also the case of Iran. At one point, both Hillary Clinton and John McCain were saying we must keep Iran from getting nuclear weapons at all costs. In other words, we must we must go to war against them if it comes to that, killing tens of thousands of people in order to keep them from getting weapons, which are likely to prove completely useless and irrelevant to the international uh, situation. I'll let Dr. Caldicott respond. I know you have to uh, leave us in a few minutes, Dr. Caldicott. Um, but John, I, I, I like what you say mostly, uh, but you disagree with uh, Perry, um, who's former Secretary of Defence, and J- General James Cartwright, and, and quite a lot of others who are now, who are senior officials in the past, who are saying we're closer to nuclear war than we've ever been before, and it's partly because of Trump, um, who has the codes. He's the only person in America who could start a nuclear war. He's volatile, um, never know, really know what's, what he's going to do, and I've said that before. I think that's the worry, and, of course, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, uh, they're, they're worried too with their clock closer to midnight. And also you've got to think of accidents, you've got to think of human fallibility, uh, you've got to think that, you know, the men in the missile silos about 78 have been uh, sacked in the last year or two because they take drugs, they cheat on their exams, and some of the senior commanders have been dismissed for inappropriate behaviour. So we're in the hands of fallible human beings, men. And I know as a physician that even we, with our patients, are fallible, and we make mistakes. I mean, the president or Putin or someone could get a brain tumour and do something you know, untoward and, and blow up the world or, or become psychotic. There are many situations where in, where in the hands of just mere human beings with weapons that would, I mean, they'd be set with the power inside the centre of the sun. And we just can't have them. We've got to get rid of the darn things. And um, you think that Russia and America wouldn't go to war? Well, they probably won't if you look at it rationally. But, you know, we're not always rational. And the man who's just got the Nobel Prize for economics, that was his whole point, that people make decisions not necessarily on a rational basis. And so the economic theory has holes in it because of that very fact. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I want to thank Dr. Helen Caldicott, founding president of Physicians for Social Responsibility, also founder of Women's Action for Nuclear Disarmament, editor of the new book, Sleepwalking to Armageddon, The Threat of Nuclear Annihilation. Dr. Caldicott, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Lucy. Coming up, we'll continue to talk about nuclear proliferation and whether disarmament is possible, and we'll talk more about whether the president should be able to unilaterally launch a nuclear strike. There's a bill in Congress to keep that from happening. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Earlier, we heard from Dr. Helen Caldicott. She's one of the world's most prominent anti-nuclear activists. She argues we're closer to nuclear annihilation now than during the Cold War. You can join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, how do threats from North Korea, paired with President Trump's assertions this summer that the U.S. needs more nuclear weapons, impact prior efforts to reduce nuclear proliferation? On the phone with us is John Mueller, senior fellow at the Cato Institute and political scientist at Ohio State University. And joining our conversation now in studio is Alexis Dudden, professor of history at the University of Connecticut, author of Troubled Apologies Among Japan, Korea, and the United States, and Japan's Colonization of Korea, Discourse, and Power. Uh, Welcome back to the show, Alexis. Thanks so much for having me. So you were able to listen to our our previous conversation and this assertion from Dr. Caldicott that we're closer now to nuclear war than we were at the height of the Cold War. What's your reaction to that? Unfortunately, I think she's correct. Uh, And in that, I think the designation on the doomsday clock that we're two and a half minutes to midnight is of signal importance. And you brought up that this is the closest to midnight we've been since 1953 when the U.S. and uh, Soviet Union began developing hydrogen weapons. And if I could just touch on that, because earlier Dr. Mueller mentioned that nobody has died from nuclear weapons since 1945. But that's just not true because in 1954, the world's first victim of a hydrogen bomb, a Japanese fisherman, Kuboyama Aikichi, yes, an unintended victim. But what's significant about his death is Japan was not at war. The United States was not at war with Japan either. And yet, um, despite the well-designated no-go zone that the U.S. military had provided fishermen in the Pacific, Uh, The Castle Bravo test went far beyond uh, the limits that were set for it, and this fisherman was caught in its radioactive fallout. What's also significant um, is that he, because U.S. censorship restrictions on knowledge about nuclear warfare that had been in play in full until 1952 in Japan, controlling knowledge about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Um, Those restrictions were off by 1954. And so this man, Kuboyama Aikichi, died in front of the nation's eyes, Japan's eyes, and so really touched off the world's first anti-nuclear movement which has grown over time to the groups that have now won Nobel Peace Prizes for their efforts. Uh, John, did you want to get in on the conversation in terms of the the collateral damage that having these uh, arms uh, face uh, gives people around the world, including what uh, Alexis just mentioned? Yeah, there have been people who died probably from excessive radiation, including around Las Vegas in the early years, for example, uh, but they haven't been subject to nuclear death. Uh, the people who have died are the people in Iraq because of that war there. Uh, I must say, we've been hearing this sort of stuff for 75 years, nearly. And if you have a clock that sticks pretty much a few minutes before midnight for uh, 70 years, you begin to think maybe there's something wrong with the clock. Um, the, uh, the, uh, and furthermore, the, uh, some, of the, some of the concerns about crazy people have already been uh, worked out. Uh, when Stalin got the bomb in 1949, he was wandering around the Kremlin saying, uh, it's getting so I can't even trust myself. You know, I can't trust anybody, not even myself, so you couldn't even call him paranoid. And when Mao got the weapon in 1964, he just finished uh, a bizarre social experiment called the Great Leap Forward, which resulted in the death of perhaps 45 million Chinese uh, from starvation. Uh, if anybody was crazy, that would be a crazy act. Mm. So um, it, it, uh, the, these weapons exist. The people who, have, who are certifiable have not used them, and I think that's very likely to continue. 
Uh, when we talk about um, whether someone's, uh, you know, mentally incapacitated, when we look at Kim Jong-un, there have been, uh, there's debate whether, um, you know, he's uh, could be a deranged individual in terms of miscalculation if he's goaded uh, by people like President Trump. Is there cause for concern there, John? Well, it'd be nice to uh, be able to know what's going on in his head. But basically what it seems to be is that he has been threatened repeatedly by the United States uh, and has decided that it's important to have a nuclear weapon that can potentially hit the United States in order to deter the United States from attacking it. After all, in 2000, uh, uh, right after 9-11, George Bush uh, said that his goal in the world now was to rid the world of evil. He came into office promising a humble foreign policy, and that's a bit on the opposite side. Uh, and then the next year, uh, he uh, proclaimed that uh, the axis of evil started with North Korea. It was after that that they pulled out of the non-proliferation treaty and really started working on nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, so in many respects, the, the threat he feels is very much there. The United States has been repeatedly threatening ever since the 1950s. Uh, and it seems basically what he wants to do is get something that will resemble a deterrent. He uh, obviously is deterred himself. He must be in the sense that he's, he's confronted by a coalition of the people who have tens of thousands of nuclear weapons and vastly superior military force. Uh, and he's also basically contained. He doesn't seem to want to expand any place. So I don't think the hysteria over North Korea is particularly justified. I'd certainly be happy if they didn't get the bombs. I'd be happy if the United States didn't have the bomb or anybody else. But it doesn't seem to represent an extreme danger. And as I've indicated, excessive alarmism about nuclear weapons has led to the death of large numbers of people. Alexis. Yes, I I do agree with Professor Mueller on that. I think that... uh, no, it, it, Kim Jong-un is not crazy. Uh, he's actually perhaps, you know, without uh, regard for human life, but I don't think that defines one as insane in this world. I would like to touch on the sort of constant American threats to North Korea because uh, while we can perhaps agree that, you know, excessive hype over nuclear uh, weapons doesn't necessarily forward the conversation. But then neither does this sort of current uh, Washington discussion about switching America's policy and potentially doing a first strike against North Korea. And this was most succinctly articulated on November 6 by retired Admiral Dennis Blair, who in his chairman's memo to his peace foundation, the Sasakawa Peace Organization in Washington, wrote that if North Korea tests an atmospheric test in the Pacific, then the United States, together with South Korea and Japan, should launch an all-out strike on all known nuclear facilities in North Korea. And this is where, you know, we're really talking about shifting uh, how the U.S. military operates from a a sort of second strike uh, defensive deterrent posture to doing a first strike, which has always been murky territory for Washington and Moscow, but now with uh, a number of officials openly advocating this position, we're really openly threatening North Korea in a new way. I want to take a call now. Again, you can join the conversation. Today we're talking about nuclear proliferation. Uh, What do you think is the future when we have uh, nine nations with nuclear capabilities, uh, the biggest being U.S. and Russia? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Catherine's calling from Hartford. Catherine, you're on the show. Um, Thank you for having me. Um, I am calling from Hartford. I'm a member of the Kinetic Coalition for Peace and Justice. 
We just had a conference on nuclear war last Saturday and um, intend to have more in the future. Um, we are trying to um, we're trying to cut the military budget. We're trying to, I agree with what everybody has been saying that we are the threat to North Korea and yet we talk that they're the threat to us. Actually, for many years, we've been the threat to North Korea. And if we hadn't gone into Iraq and and destroyed Iraq's government, then Korea would not be scared that we would do the same thing to them. So what they're doing in building this bomb is, is reacting to our aggression as Americans. As we are, we've got bases all over the world. There's no other country that has bases all over the world. Um, what we have over 50% of our budget is spent on military um, buildup. And um, with bases all over the world, even bases we don't even know about, that our drone bases are being built and we may not be aware because we're not told about them. Um, the soldiers that were killed in Africa, that they were working on a drone, building a drone base that nobody seemed to know about. Um, so there's things that are going on, um, building up, um, sort of like building up um, um, a power base for the United States to be controlling the world or the oligarchs of the country working to control um, the military, the, the world, and that can also include Russia. If Russia is also working with the oligarchs, then the oligarchs in their country are also working to build up control through military things. And what we need to do is cut the military budget. If we want North Korea to back off, to feel more secure is what they need. Well, thank you. So it's cut our budget, and we need to use that money for um, for taxes um, sent to economic crisis in our own country. Well, thank you, Catherine, uh, for your call. Um, she mentions uh, cutting uh, the defense uh, spending bill. That's easier said than done, isn't it, John? Yes, unfortunately. Uh, I, I'd like to see it go pretty much to zero. I'm writing a book called The Costa Rica Option um, overall. But anyway, I, uh, I dealt with a lot of these issues in uh, an earlier book called Atomic Obsession. Uh, and one of the problems is that trying to get rid of nuclear weapons by hysterically saying how dangerous they are and how bad they would be in another, in another country, such as the Soviet Union during the Cold War in North Korea now, uh, the reaction to that is not to get rid of nuclear weapons, to say, but we got to have even more of them. Uh, that was happening with the Bolton Atomic Scientists. They were trying to scare the people to death with their ridiculous clock. Uh, and the result of that is that, boy, if those weapons are so powerful, we better get many more of them than the Russians. And so it, has, it, it repeatedly has had a counterproductive effect overall. Uh, during the Cold War, the reason that we had so many such a huge buildup was not because uh, there was the military-industrial complex was so clever, but that they were working from a premise, namely that the Soviet Union is out to destroy the United States. Eisenhower, instead of going, even though he didn't believe that, Eisenhower did not, didn't have the courage to go against that premise. 
Instead, he attacked the military-industrial complex, not against the premise they gave him their, their potency. And currently, the whole thing about North Korea or Iran or wherever else uh, is uh, fed by the fact that people are so afraid that uh, a single nuclear weapon in the hands of North Korea could uh, end up with Armageddon happening. You have to go against that premise, not simply uh, uh, stoke the alarm about that, because that only plays into the hands of the people who want to build more of these ridiculous weapons. Can I talk? Uh, ask both of you about countries that have given up on these weapons, including Brazil. How are they able to do that? Well, it's been fairly easy. Uh, there's been lots. South Africa gave up. Uh, Ukraine gave up. Belarus gave up. Uh, there's been a huge number. There's a guy named uh, Jacques Hymans, H-A-Y-M-A-N-S, who's written, a friend of mine who's written quite extensively about that. And there's been a large number of countries that have started nuclear programs, realized how costly and difficult it was, and basically gave up. Um, it is not an easy task, as North Korea is certainly finding itself to bankrupt the country practically in order to build them. Uh, and if you don't feel that the kind of alarm they feel frequently, people, uh, countries have not done it. In the, in the early 60s, John Kennedy was saying there going to be 15 or 20 nuclear powers by the mid-70s, uh, or even 25, he sometimes said. And uh, as you pointed out earlier, the total number of countries that have them now is nine, uh, maybe nine too many, but it's certainly not uh, the uh, number that was being touted in those days. I wanted to talk, uh, b before we run out of time, I want to bring up the bill in Congress that would uh, prevent President Trump, any U.S. president, from unilaterally launching a nuclear strike. Uh, before we get to that, Lexis, you wanted to bring up a quick point. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not the nuclear weapons themselves that create hysteria. It's the people who support building and possessing them. And it is instructive to look at the current Trump cabinet. And these are people who came directly from nuclear weapons producing corporations, the boards of Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, um, so forth and so on, Raytheon. Uh, and, you know, they have a vested interest in uh, this $1.7 trillion proposal to increase and so-called make smarter our already overburdened capabilities. Uh, when we talk about a preemptive Again, a preemptive strike. Uh, I mentioned this bill uh, before Congress. Is this something that has any legs, John, in terms of uh, taking the power away from the U.S. president to unilaterally launch a nuclear strike and allowing Congress to authorize it? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the exact legal thing would be on that. I, there, there are a lot of ways it's difficult for Trump can't just print, press a, bu a, bu a button and suddenly we have World War III. Uh, people are uh, justifiably concerned about his mental stability, but I don't think it, it goes to the point of blowing everything up. Uh, I'm more afraid of what Dennis Blair was saying, that if he even tests a weapon, what we have to do is you know, kill 10, 20, 30, 50,000 of them, uh, because if they get them, the world will come to an end. When I see, if, as far as I can see, experience demonstrates extremely well that if they get them, it won't make a, a bloody bit, bit, bit of difference overall. Uh, Alexis Studdard. I agree with that. And I think one thing that's also going on at the moment, both in Washington's uh, debate over taking Trump's uh, unilateral uh, powers away, is this notion of a legal, a legitimate uh, use of nuclear weapons. Because it is always instructive to remember that nuclear weapons remain the, you know, the, the uh, Nobel Prize winning group's treaty to prohibit the use of nuclear weapons notwithstanding. Mm -hmm. Nuclear weapons remain the legal weapon of mass destruction, and so, you know, this is very much something that if we if we shifted focus uh, to that, and again, that is maybe a pipe dream of mine, but um, the idea that these are not outlawed 
is uh, something really to focus on. Alexis Duddens, professor of history at the University of Connecticut. She's in studio with us as we talk about nuclear proliferation. John Mueller, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, political scientist at Ohio State University. Thank you for joining our conversation today. Thank you. Coming up, nine nations have nuclear weapons. China is one of them. What role does it have in keeping North Korea in line? We'll ask that question of UConn Professor Alexis Dudden, and we'll take your questions, too. 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, 2nd District Congressman Joe Courtney will join us in studio to talk about what's happening in Washington, including the Republican tax plan, continuing efforts to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, and the defense spending bill, among others. Now, what questions do you have for Congressman Courtney? You can join the conversation tomorrow on Where We Live. Now, today we've been talking about nuclear proliferation and whether countries like the U.S. and Russia will ever significantly reduce their weapons post-Cold War. Now, we heard from a listener, uh, Nick, who said he thinks it's wrong to cut the military budget because the people who get hurt the most are the people who serve. Now, given North Korea's recent threats, President Trump has asked China to help with increased sanctions. Is this the most effective strategy? Alexis Duddens in studio with me, professor of history at the University of Connecticut, author of Troubled Apologies Among Japan, Korea, and the United States. Let's talk about that strategy. China has an enormous role to play uh, in many respects. First, China is very clearly trying to become the new uh, center of, if not just Asia, the world. And so acting responsibly in an internationalist fashion is in China's interests. Therefore, if China can broker a denuclearized Korean peninsula, it is, you know, it, it bodes well for China's future as, an, as a responsible member of the international community. Moreover, China has a much more immediate self-interest. China does not want uh, any sort of hostile outbreak on its border. It does not want American, Japanese, and South Korean forces up on uh, its border. And it does not want the permanent basing of U.S. troops next door. Uh, so all of these things make China not want a militarized outcome, nor does it want uh, any radioactive waste falling in, in its regions. There was a, a response to North Korea's most recent nuclear test in early September, uh, which Chinese papers reported not to worry. No nuclear fallout was detected in China, which is a very sort of minute way of, of looking at things. At the same time, the problem with putting all of our eggs in the China basket is that North Korea is not at war with China. North Korea remains, at, as Dr. Caldicott was mentioning at the outset, North Korea remains at a state of war with the United States. And so in that respect, the United States is the key to solving this crisis, and North Korea knows that, which is why it routinely threatens the United States. It's not threatening to test its weapons in the other direction. It, it, you know, by virtue of geography, it tests out into the Pacific. It fires shots over the bow of Japan, which has a whole host of reasons, especially the 20th century and its legacies. But it's not threatening to demonstrate its weapons capability in any other direction. Um, and so it's really important for people to understand that, yes, China and China is actively trying to uh, bring dial down the the threats at the moment, but the United States needs to engage in proactive diplomacy 
with North Korea because that is the only thing that will solve this problem. Dr. Caldecott mentioned North Korea just wants to be recognized as a state. Yes, and a peace treaty, um, as unpopular with some people who uh, see that as constant appeasement to North Korea, and yet at the same time, the only thing that will change North Korea is North Koreans. And ultimately, the only way to do that is for North Koreans to have recognizable borders. They don't have borders. They don't have a defined state as such, yet because they will have only an armistice, which keeps it in a permanent state of flux, that is territorially speaking. So once there is a defined space on the planet that is the state called North Korea, North Koreans will have to work within North Korea to create the future for themselves. Now, recently, we brought up attention to something that President Trump said in the summer about the U.S. needing to build up its arsenal. Uh, in October, he says he wants to denuke the world. So uh, <laughs> what message can we take from that, Alexis? I try not to follow the logic of our president's uh, statements and hope that they match. They don't. What we can follow is the budget proposal, which, for, again, for $1.7 trillion to modernize our uh, nuclear buildup or our nuclear uh, uh, state of affairs, it's a tenfold, uh, but it's a potential tenfold increase in what we already have, which has already been judged too much. Uh, of particular significance, and this is, you know, this predates Trump. This started under Obama. Obama gave it the green light, that is, to continue with the, the development of the so-called low-yield technology, the so-called smart uh, bomb that is carried on the B-1 bombers from Guam. And uh, that's really, you know, where we're headed in these, these smaller uh, weapons that uh, create as much havoc. I want to thank Alexis Dudden, professor of history at the University of Connecticut. It's a complicated issue. It's hard to, to parse it down, but we thank you for your expertise, as always. Thank you. She's also the author of Troubled Apologies Among Japan, Korea, and the United States, and Japan's Colonization of Korea, Discourse and Power. Our senior producer, Lydia Brown, produced today's show. Special thanks to WMPR intern Ashley Taylor. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.